Welcome to Psychology Radiocast, a service of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. I'm your host, Dr. David Zerung. On today's episode, Amelia Herbst interviews psychologist Dr. Sherry Kim and Dr. Kalima Young regarding empathic witnessing of violent viral videos. Amelia, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, David. Now, for our listeners who don't yet know you, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm Amelia Herbst. I am actually the producer for Psychology Radiocast, so I do a lot of the fun behind-the-scenes stuff for you all. Um, I'm also a member of the Interpersonal Violence Committee, and I am soon to be a pre-doctoral intern. Congratulations. Thank you. Best wishes on a propitious year. Oh, I'm very excited. So please introduce us to Drs. Kim and Young and how this episode came to be. Yeah, I can talk about them a bit. Um, So Dr. Shara Kim is actually someone I know from the Interpersonal Violence Committee. Um, Dr. Kim is a licensed psychologist and certified addictions counselor. She specializes in treatment of addictions and PTSD. She is also the chair of the Behavioral Health Work Group for the York County Human Trafficking Task Force and the chair of the Human Trafficking Subcommittee for the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. She also serves as the Disaster Response Network Coordinator for PPA and the Central Pennsylvania Territory Lead for Disaster Mental Health with the American Red Cross. Um, Dr. Young is actually a very good friend of Dr. Kin's, and it's kind of cool in the interview. You, When you hear them talk, you can tell that they've got this really cool like familiarity and like friendship between the two of them. Um, and Dr. Kalima Young is an associate professor in the Department of Electronic Media and Film at Towson University. Her research explores the impact of race and gender-based trauma on Black American identity formation and Black cultural production. Her forthcoming manuscript, Mediated Misogynoir, The Erasure of Black Women and Girls' Pain in the Public Imagination, will be released fall of 2020 by Lexington Books. So two really impressive female academics and clinicians. Just it was a really amazing conversation between the two of them, and it was great to be a part of it. What were some of the things that stood out for you? One of the big things I felt I learned so much um, from Dr. Young, listening to her talk about her research and the fact that just violent media that shows the victimization of black folks, just the fact that it's always been there. And the fact that for the longest time, a lot of these, a lot of the pictures of lynchings and stuff were used by white folk in order to like just show off, you know, to their friends and family to send them as postcards and stuff. Like I just knowing that that was a thing, it's it's terrifying. You know, that's not something I learned in my history textbook. So finding out that that's something that's very much rooted into the history here, and then finding out that a black mother used the picture of like her her badly beaten and killed son, and then that to try to start a national conversation about what's being done to them. I mean, it makes sense that where we are now, as far as the videos go, it's just coming from a long line of harm that has always been there, but, you know, it's more accessible now. That's one of the one thing that I think a lot of us have been hearing is that we are seeing it more so now it's not that it was never there it's not that even the media part of it it's not that the media part of it was never there it's just it's far more accessible to us than it had been in the past and also I think one of the big things that you know I was re-reminded of hearing both Dr. Young and Dr. Kim talk about it is just having to be careful about sharing this media because even those of us that we want to continue to show that this is something that's happening in the community and we want to make people aware of how terrible this is we are potentially and honestly in most cases we are re-traumatizing this community again and again and again by sharing this stuff and not giving warnings and then even just viewing it as part of what's going on in the world and not actually taking you know in the depth of what this this means for this community and like how it's just further causing harm. So for the listener who's getting ready to listen to this interview, uh, I think this is a great introduction to the interview. Um, Amelia, the topic in this episode is particularly difficult to process. 
but I like the recommendations that they provided, including the wrap-up summary statement. But I don't want to steal their thunder, so I just want to tease our audience to continue listening uh, to the end, even though this is a difficult topic. So, Amelia, thank you for inter- interviewing Drs. Kim and Young for us. Yeah, absolutely. And now for the interview. So, Dr. Kim, Dr. Young, thank you so much for joining us for Psychology Radiocast. I'm so excited to have the both of you on. Um, I know we're going to be talking about the article that you two co-wrote for the Pennsylvania Psychologist called Empathetic Witnessing of Violent Viral Videos. Uh, What edition is that going to come out in? September? Yes. Perfect. Well, welcome. So happy to have you both. Thanks Uh, for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. All right. So in this article, you talk about a lot of videos that are coming out specifically about police brutality to the black community. Um, These videos have become so commonplace, especially within the last few years and even within the last few months. Mm -hmm. Is there something that like triggered this recently? Is there a history behind this? Is this like the first time we're actually seeing this? Um, is that, I take it. No, (laughs) (laughs) I guess my answer to that is no, this is not new. It's just a different format. Um, so images of black pain, wounding and death are a part of the American landscape. You have everything from images used in abolition to images used during the lynching moments where people would take photographs at lynchings and send those around as souvenirs to their families. You have images from the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s of black people being attacked and harassed and killed and beaten fighting for their lives and fighting for civil rights. You have the video imagery of Rodney King in the 1990s, which spurred uh, with the, um, which when the cops were released, spurred the LA riots. So these viral videos that we're seeing right now are simply part and parcel of an American tradition of seeing viral images of black wounding and death. The thing that is different about this particular cultural moment is um, not only the fact that we have such rapid media saturation, it's the fact that much of this imagery is captured by citizen witnesses, so people with cell phones. So you have a lot of citizen witness uh, capturing that's going on of state-sanctioned violence that has been happening for millennia. Um, And we have the universe of media saturation, which is the online space. And in the online space, um, that is a place where people do a lot of impression management. There's this desire to be fully engaged in conversation. So the image comes by your screen, you see it, you share it, you make some kind of statement about it, either for good or for ill. But it's not about actually witnessing the images, it's more about being in the know and having the most important or most urgent information. And that's how it's being spread. So it's not new, it's just in a new, it's just uh, remixed in the way that it's being saturated and sent around. Yeah, and I would just add that I want to highlight one thing that Dr. Young said, which was just that people are more concerned a lot of the time about showing that they know and having showing people that they 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 have the most important thing to say about the video, they have the most important information, as as Dr. Young said, not about actually witnessing what's happening in the video and having empathy about what's happening in the video. And that's concerning because spreading the information in that way can just desensitize us to it. And it's really not doing justice to the person being harmed in the video. Definitely. First of all, the history behind that, I feel like that's something some of us might have learned and some of us might not have learned. So it's interesting to actually hear, you know, from the lynchings for those photos being like souvenirs and then, you know, Mm -hmm. what started or what was used in order to help show exactly what was happening to start some of these movements. It's, it's, it's a lot of really rich history that we seem to be missing and it even has kind of brought us to this point, or at least it kind of sounds like that that is the case. Right. Um, so much of, and the thing is, 
um, this history has been used for so many, or this particular technique has been used in so many different ways. So people, black people in America have used these images to spur civil rights actions. Like I always reference Mamie Till, the mother of Emmett Till, and her choice to allow Jet Magazine to have a full image of her battered and disfigured son on the cover so that people would understand the kind of racial terror that was happening down South. At the same time, things like lynching photography or any of these other images have been used like in the in the case of lynching photography and souvenirs, it was literally an opportunity for people to come to these spectacles, take these pictures, share them and send them out to their families, kind of like you're sending postcards to people. Mm -hmm. Right. And the way that um, some um, one of my favorite cultural theorists talks about it, um, Kara Holloway, she think, talks about it as lynching photography was an opportunity for white people to solidify their feeling of connection and community relation by sharing these images. And it was also an opportunity to foster racial terror against black people. So it created a sense of collective identity for one, and it created a sense of collective identity for the other, but they're doing totally different things. That makes and, sense. And that really goes in line with Gordon Allport's in-group out-group theory, where mm -hmm. if you are part of our group, you are good. And if you are not part of our group, you are bad. Exactly. And it causes so, you know, I, I worked with gangs for many years and it fostered so much animosity between gangs and it, but his original work was about prejudice and about these very issues mm -hmm. of what makes people have these feelings towards each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, another thing just to add on that, um, so you have the in-group and you have the out-group theory. You also have it as an opportunity for people to, if you, um, one of the things we think about in abject theory is if you continually see a particular group of people in a particular light, you end up not seeing them fully as human beings. They end up being symbolic representations of everything else. So when white people see black people in pain in these spaces, and it's happening again and again and again, it continues to make black Americans an abject figure. And it also makes it as if these folks are the ones that are supposed to be receiving this particular level of state-sanctioned violence. And that is extremely problematic, which is what people have been fighting and having uprisings against for the last several years. So that brings up an, an interesting point. Um, something that I thought about while reading the article, um, both as far as sharing the violent viral videos, both to attempt to gain empathy or even just to use it symbolically um, or on the flip side of things to kind of, I'm using quotation marks because the audience can't see it, prove that these groups deserve the sanctioned violence against them. What role do reporters um, or the media have in this? Do they hold any responsibility for both revealing either either side of things and then also continuing like this traumatic um, narrative, I should say. Dr. Kim, you want to roll on that or you want me to go? Well, I was just thinking about the different ways that even just the Black Lives Matter movement in general is portrayed and from different media outlets and the conversations I have personally had with people about that movement and about other things such as white privilege and all of these other things where it's somebody told, said to me yesterday, white privilege is a divisive term. And I said, <laughs> it's not, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't take it that well either. <laughs> I said, white privilege is not a divisive term. And his response was, well, I don't have white privilege because I grew up in a household where I had to go to work when I was such and such an age. And I had these traumatic things that happened to me. And I said, that's not what white privilege is. White privilege is the fact that you can go jogging in a neighborhood and nobody's going to shoot you and say you're a burglar. White privilege is the fact that you can get pulled over by a police officer and go in your glove compartment to grab your registration and not have the police officer assume that you're going to shoot them. Um, and that the white male privilege, you know, I, how many men 
have said to them, well, I can look at your penis because you're wearing the, the, those tight pants. And so I have the privilege of looking at that. Just like when people say, well, mm -hmm. if you didn't wear that much cleavage, then um, I wouldn't be, you must want me to look at your breasts because you're showing so much cleavage. Or, um, you know, growing up as a Jewish woman in a place where there weren't a lot of Jews, having people draw swastikas on my property during coming back from class and having a swastika on my locker or having people egg my house or draw swastikas in my driveway on Jewish holidays. And I said, that is part of your privilege that you don't have to experience those things. That is what white privilege is. And he couldn't grasp it. And that goes into the piece of white fragility, which he also took offense to. Uh, term white fragility said yeah. well that implies that it's all white people and which is not what it is at all and and frankly failure to look at the yeah i didn't like that either. i'm just going chill so, i'm just going yeah. stay quiet go eat mm. failure to look at these things and this is what i said to him failure to look at these pieces uh the our bl cultural blind spots and we all have failure to look at them is what causes harm and it's what perpetuates these problems. So if a media outlet is saying, we're gonna show this video for X reason, but they don't aren't aware of the cultural blind spot that's causing harm in the way that they're presenting these videos, that's a huge problem. That can cause a lot of harm to the community that's being represented in the videos. It can cause, can galvanize movements against that community. It causes all this psychological damage across the board. And it's incumbent on us as psychologists to look at those pieces and to constantly look at where our blind spots are and appreciate when they're pointed out to us, not get defensive. Mm -hmm. It's like, the issue is, I think so many people, especially those who are not versed in specific kinds of theory. So many people are unable to understand what systemic and structural inequality means. So instead, when people are making a converse, uh, actually making an argument about systemic privilege with facts and data to back it up, people in turn in defense pull to their own personal history and their own personal story to repute actual facts yes. right so like we have an inability to talk about structural racism structural oppression systemic racism to look at how all of the systems that are exist in the world are backing up a particular person's ability to move forward yes. it's it's almost like those arguments that um people get into when folks don't understand systemic systemic or structural racism and someone says coming from a cultural studies background well asian people or black people can't be racist and people are like oh my god no -uh, <laughs> this person treated me poorly when i was in the store with this decided decision to not hear the structural part of the argument, which is a person can treat you poorly because they do not like you. They are prejudiced against you. But until you can get the laws, institution, cultural institutions, policies to back up your particular racism or your particular prejudice, you cannot foster racism. Like there is a difference. So when people push back against this idea of white privilege, they're literally choosing not to understand the structural argument that, and the systemic argument that tells us that every institution that says we are citizens of this nation are back in their play, not other people's play. Yeah. So that draws me batty. And media institutions, to go back to Amelia's first part of this conversation, media institutions have the same exact lack of analysis they it does not do them well it doesn't it does not help them to sell advertisements advertising space it doesn't help for them to be able to have the quick little blurb if they have to say and here's all the structural context that goes along with how this thing occurs right mm -hmm. they need the spectacle to drive the advertising dollars to keep their ratings up so they're not going to have a conversation about systemic or structural oppression. They're going to use the spectacle to make their money. And even if they can hide behind, but we're showing you something that nobody knows about, Black people have been talking about our way of existing in this country for over 400 years. 
They just haven't been listening. Mm-hmm. So I always feel that argument of, oh, I've got to put it out there because folks don't know this is really happening as a lie. It's like, we've been telling you, but you don't want to listen. Right. So, but I get a little fired up about that. So I'm going to just chill. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's frustrating because it you keep saying, and people keep saying, not you especially because of, of who you are, but people keep saying over and over, look at what's happening. Look at what's happening. Look at how these institutions went. I'm upset because I grew up in an area of Maryland that was 80% black. And when I grew up in this community, there were so many pieces left out of the history lessons that I learned in my school that not just affected, it's certainly affected my black classmates, but it affected me too, because now I don't understand. I didn't know what redlining was. I didn't learn that till a couple of years ago that redlining exists. I didn't know about the Tulsa bombing until I watched Watchmen. I mean, oh how ridiculous is that? That, that is ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> but. So, but that just kind of, we, we choose to highlight certain pieces of history. And then you take a group of people that don't see themselves represented in any positive ways. And then we build that into the entire structure and fabric of our society and expect them to be okay with it. Mm-hmm. And, and then we, we don't, we get, we get, well, why are they rioting? What's wrong with them? Well, cause nobody's listening to them and they're frustrated. Uh, I'm not condoning violence, but I get it. Right. Um, and I'm sorry, kneeling isn't violent, but people no. protested about that. Yes. So yes. I, 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 when I think about people who are running around being like, why are they violent? Why are they looting things? I'm like, do they own, do the people that you're seeing own any of those things in the neighborhood? Is that giving anything back to that neighborhood? If you are coming from a space of lack and this is the only opportunity that you have to get certain things. Why not take that opportunity? I think also anything that people do that questions how the status quo work is going to be seen as violence. Even if you are just sitting quietly at a lunch counter, even if you are just kneeling, mm-hmm. you don't have to loot a store for your actions to be seen as violent. Yeah. You simply have to call out the status quo. Yeah. And that's what's happening. Yes. Absolutely. And so another thing came up recently um, with one of my employees, and she's relatively new to being a therapist. She's been a social worker for about a year. And I was talking to her. So in our last staff meeting, I talked about, I kind of opened the space for people to talk about how they were feeling about all of this stuff. um, Mm -hmm. And to just kind of have a really candid discussion about race and about how the way people are responding to this stuff is is affecting us. And one of my staff asked to meet with me individually and she said, I'm reading White Fragility Mm. and I keep finding things that I didn't know. And I feel bad, like I should have known these things. Mm. And I said, And she said, I'm a social worker. I'm supposed to know this stuff. I'm supposed to be woke. (laughs) And I said, you can't possibly know everything about somebody else's experience. And that experience changes over time. And I brought up the, you know, when I was a kid, there was no internet. So I have privilege now because I have internet access in my home. That gives me privilege alone. But when I was a kid, that didn't give me privilege because the internet didn't exist. So even the things, the way privilege is structured in society changes over time. So you can't possibly know everything. And what our job is, is not to be perfect and to to make sure that we understand everything, but it's to be open to learning more things and to listening to the people that are trying to educate us. Right, right. And I think that is what we have. (laughs) I think it's very sad. Like that's just a human condition. (laughs) Right. That's just a part of the human condition. I think also compounded with that is that we have so much information and so much media saturation and people are not taught how to actually read. Right. People aren't taught how to analyze an image. People aren't taught how to understand a news article and how it's been put together. People aren't taught how to watch Right. Because so we are inundated with all of this information 
And we're not, many people do not have the skills to actually parse it out and make it make sense and get some clarity to it. And I think that's, that contributes as well to the shock and awe when people realize that they have things. They're like, oh my God, I feel very guilty now. It's mm -hmm. like, well, you weren't actually taught how to actually think about this country. You weren't taught to think about what makes a nation state. You weren't taught about how to read certain images. So yeah, you've got blind spots. Mm -hmm. so. And it's hard to, when you're talking to somebody who's a perfectionist and thinks they should know all these things, it's hard to help them understand that, no, you're not going to know all these things. Mm -hmm. And it's okay that you're not gonna know all these things. Yeah. Your job is to look for them look for the things you don't know, identify, yes. hey, I never thought of it that way before, and, and be able to kind of shift your way of thinking right. instead of getting defensive about it. And then our yeah. other job is to teach other people and not to, not to be silent. Um, right. I made my son watch 13th the other day. Good. <laughs> well, and the really cool thing was he, he goes to a much better school than I went to. And he was like, I already know that. I remember that. Yeah. And then, and then he would elaborate on what was happening in, in the history parts. Um, but I told him, look, I'm glad that you know these stories and that you've been educated on some level about this stuff. But it's really important that you understand how this thing here created this entire culture of violence against an entire community of people. And I need you to understand that because you're my son and you're gonna understand that. <laughs> um, but the, it's, so he's 16. So obviously there's some like pieces of him that are gonna have trouble grasping that concept because mm -hmm. he's still a teenager. But I wanted yes. him to at least be exposed to that knowledge. And I think it's important that and if we're going to combat white fragility and we're going to com combat these other issues of white privilege, we have to educate kids when they're younger instead of waiting for people to be adults and already kind of say, no, this is how my life is. How, who are you to tell me my life is different? Who are you to tell me that I have these things that I, I don't think I have? Right. And, and then try to shift people's mind when it's a little bit harder to mold. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Get them while they're young. Yeah, exactly. This, you two have brought up so much and I've got so many different segues. So I'm going to, I'm going to go this way first. Um, a lot of what you two have been talking about is related to like centuries of, of just trauma that has been in this community. Um, so what is cultural trauma? And how are these videos, how are these posts, how are they continuing to codify uh, cultural trauma in the black community? Um, I guess I'll speak to that because that's my background. Um, so uh, cultural trauma, unlike your individual traumas that occur in your everyday life, cultural trauma is when an event occurs and those people to a specific group of people and in that event, they see that instance as having such irreversible damage that it is a trauma to the entire group. The people have to see the event as this event has happened to us. They take on the trauma as a part of an identity activation, right? It's yeah. saying, oh, this is happening to you. They see the trauma as having irreversible damage and shifting their way of existing in the world. And then it is accepted as a cultural trauma. So there's an entire process that happens for something to become a cultural trauma. These videos, because they are about and are represent black people, black American people, create a sense of an identity activation where you see yourself in there. You see your family member, you see your aunt, you see your cousin, you see your uncle, you see your brother, you see your sister. You see that this is systemically happening and that takes it and creates it as a cultural trauma. This is a cultural trauma that is taking place. And the only way that, and to some extent, right? So cultural trauma is horrible, right? Any group 
being targeted and having to realize that they are a group because they are grouply targeted as a people. That's a horrible experience. At the same time, it also is an opportunity to see yourself as belonging to a larger community and refine resistance and strength within it as well. So that's how the cultural trauma works. And these videos, and every time that they happen, they are adding to a complete pool of trauma that is related to state-sanctioned violence against Black people, which is at the foundation of slavery, which is at the foundation of this country. So when you see it, when you see a cop choking the life out of a black man. It is not that hard to go back to night watches and slave patrols where these things happened, where gangs of white people and those who are affiliated with whiteness have the ability to take the life or the freedom of black people. So these issues of violence aren't they don't sit alone. They're a part of an ongoing cultural narrative about black of black people and having state-sanctioned violence perpetuated against them. A lot of it is kind of this disparity in the way certain cultural groups are represented in the media and in film and all of these other things. You know, you don't want to... So the movie Harriet is a really good example of a movie about this incredibly strong Black woman who did some amazing stuff. And what I really liked about the movie was that there were no white people coming to the rescue in that movie. It was all black folks helping each other. And that's incredibly powerful. If you look at all of these movies where we're witnessing black trauma, and there are a lot of them. And if you kind of, I, I think if we kind of weighed it out, we would see that the images of black people in cinema are way more weighted on that side when you kind of go through your mind and think about what what movies are being made. Well, so the problem is that either we see people, we see people being harmed repeatedly in movies and then white people coming to the rescue. So either you have like, oh, look, there there's more violence against black people. Um, And then we also have this other narrative going on of white people need to go in and save them Mm -hmm. and bestow our our goodness onto them, which is this kind of condescending attitude of, let me, let me give you, you poor, unfortunate person, let me, let me give you something. And the problem with that, in addition to the overall narrative, which is problematic in itself, is that it's teaching us that the way to be an ally is to go in and rescue people and speak for them and just swoop in and take over. And that's not how to be a good ally. You don't speak for people to be an ally. You empower people and stand next to them and, or even behind them, however they need you to stand, but you let them take the lead and ask them, how can I help? And it's, and we're not perfect at it. There, you know, mm-hmm. I, I ran stuff by Dr. Young before I, before I did it uh, last <laughs> week because I didn't want what I was going to do to come across as me being a performative ally, which would be kind of like, hey, look at what a great ally I am, everybody. Look at what I did, which, mm-hmm. but not actually doing anything of substance. I wanted it, what I was doing to be a message that I'm with you and not a performance. Right. And so... I don't know what that looks like because I am not black. So I need somebody who is part of that group to tell me if what I'm doing is coming across the right way. (laughs) And I also have to have enough ego strength to be able to say, I don't know this because it's not my experience. And if I don't ask, then I'm assuming a whole lot and can actually be doing harm. Right. Right. Allyship is a, a big is a big deal it's a it's and it's a complicated deal um because people 
have to be willing to abdicate power. They have to be able to give their power away. They have to be able to say they're not in the spotlight. They have to be able to say, all right, I will use my privilege in some way, shape or form to lift you up. One of the major things that I find so interesting about the um, BLM protests that have been happening for years has been when there is this conversation of allyship. I literally watched a video a couple of weeks ago at a protest where the line of police officers were advancing on a line of black protesters and a line of white protesters went and stood in front of the black people, right? Mm -hmm. Women specifically, white women specifically Mm -hmm. stood in front of this line. Are the police going to come at us? (laughs) So that is like ways that you use your privilege for folks or you pass the mic allow people to speak for themselves and back people's play. Those who are being prosecuted and oppressed know how to resist and have been resisting for years. And they've been resisting in ways that are much more magical than Kevin Costner coming in and swooping up the native folks and dances with wolves with their white savior stories, right? So the people who have been rescuing themselves continue to let them rescue themselves and give them some money and stand in front of the daggone horse, but don't protest the way they are protesting for their lives. You know? So we went from cultural trauma to white savior complex. That's fine. Take us where you need us to go. That's fine. There's that's so much good information. Is it possible to continue to share these images in a way that helps to get the information out about the injustice, but also not continuing to cause further pain and harm to the Black community? I think it's about the way, the context in which you're sharing them, Yep. the way you're viewing them. And this is kind of what we talked about in the article, too, is if you're sharing it and going, hey, look at this. Did you see this? Um, and and kind of perpetuating the spectacle, that's not helpful. If you're sharing and saying, here is another case where this happened again, what are we going to do about it? That's a very different message. Mm -hmm. If you are looking at the video and saying, look at what's happening to this person, that could be somebody that I cared about having that happen to them. Mm -hmm. I remember watching, and I... And, and the other question is whether or not you're, you should be watching them. It's, they're pretty horrifying. Um, and so you kind of have to be in a space where you're going, okay, well, here's, here's the mental space I'm going to go into mm-hmm. to watch this video. Yeah. But I'm watching this video of George Floyd, and I can see the moment where he's dead. Yep. And that was horrifying. And yes. all I could think was, how is... How is that being viewed by other people? Are people mm-hmm. realizing exactly what they're looking at? They're watching mm-hmm. this man be murdered right mm-hmm. in front of them. Mm-hmm. And that is, and then, so if you're watching somebody be murdered, what are you doing about it? Right, right. I think just to add on to that, I think there's a couple of questions you can also ask yourself, right? So before a video comes across your feed, right, or you see the, 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 comp, the, the headline that goes along with it, I can't believe this happened, check in with yourself. Do an actual body scan and find out if you are actually ready to watch this, right? Don't just let trauma wash over you and not prepare yourself like that's one thing to prepare yourself and understand what your intention is for watching are you trying to learn something by watching are you trying to bear witness to the loss of life it's a totally different way of watching something when you're trying to bear witness as opposed to just seeing what is happening you have to ask yourself then after you've taken it in what am i doing with this Am I going to share it? And if I'm going to share it, am I going to put a content warning on in it? Am I going to put some kind of context around so that people understand? Am I just going to describe what is happening and say you can click and watch the video or not watch the video? But you have to treat it with care. No one is going around taking images of your dead grandma and just throwing it across the internet. So why would you do that to somebody else's family members? Right. And that's really no matter so how important. spectacular it is. 
Yes, and that's so important. And I think that's what gets lost a lot of the time is this is somebody's family member. How would you feel if this were your family member and this was getting spread around and people were watching it over and over, this horrific thing happening to your family member? Right. Or worse, you were being bombarded by the, this image of this happening to your own family member. And that is your uncle, that is your brother, that is your sister. So I think those are really important things. In my research, I um, was looking at how do you do empathetic witnessing? And I use this thing called embodied image schema theory. And it's a certain way of watching images that you parse it out in four different ways. So you look at the frame itself. You look at what's on the center of the frame. You do a viewing that is simply listening to the sound. You do a viewing that is about watching the motion of the frame. And in doing that, this way of looking uh, triggers mirror neurons that help to increase your feeling of empathy. In my research, I literally watched 12 videos this way. So I watched each of them 22 times to witness them in the different ways. Eric Garner's death, the shooting of Tamir Rice, all of these things. And one of the things that is most helpful if you are choosing to do empathetic witnessing, and it is something that was citizen witness footage captured on a cell phone, Watch as the citizen witness. The person who is there with the cellular phone is the person who is there actually bearing witness to the murder or the injury. So in your viewing, work with that. How close are they getting to the image? How far away are they getting to the image? What words are they saying as they're capturing these images? And in that way, you become as you are bearing witness to the person who is doing the witnessing. You are sharing that burden with them. And that is a much more human way of watching and taking in these images than simply seeing the spectacle of George Floyd's breath leaving his lungs. So if you're gonna watch it, watch it with intent. And if you're gonna share it, share it with intent. And if your intent isn't for resistance, education and bolstering the and stopping the oppression of black people turn off your phone turn off your computer i wish i could clap i can but i, but I don't know if i'll keep that in <laughs> um phenomenal um so thinking about so Dr. Young, I know you teach, and Dr. Kim, I know you either see clients or you supervise people that see clients. Um, both. Both. <laughs> how do we address either cultural trauma with our clients and students, or even just if they bring up viewing these videos and these images and how it affects them? Mm. And for those of us that aren't part of the Black community, how do we sit with members of the community when they are in pain and we don't quite understand because we don't have that lived experience? Mm. Okay, do you mind if I go and then yeah. you go? Yeah. All right. Um, as a teacher, one of the things, and I tell you, uh, I've been teaching for 13 years. <laughs> There's been a lot of very uh, spectacular black death in these last, decade or so, a whole lot of it. There's no way, and one of the things that I, I keep in mind as a, as a teacher, it's just like, I exist outside of that classroom. So I'm watching these images, I'm going through my thing, right? So if I'm going through my thing, I know my students are going through their thing too. So the biggest thing for me always is to show up as my authentic self in the classroom. If there is something that is happening, if people are dying, if there is an uprising, if there is some cultural trauma, say, and I am being impacted by it, I say it. I provide space at the beginning of the class to be like, this is what's happening in the world. Let's talk. How are you feeling? Are you okay? This is how I am feeling. You don't have to tell me how you're feeling. You don't have to share it at all. But here are some pieces of paper. You can write down things and just leave it on my desk at the end of the class. And I'll reach out to you individually. For my students, I teach film and media production. I teach media 
<laughs> right? So I'm teaching students how to make movies. I'm teaching students how to tell story. I'm also teaching them how to watch, right? So if there is viral video or footage and students want to, if I make space in that classroom to engage it, we're engaging it to talk about how to actually sit and bear witness with it. For my students who are storytellers and screenwriters who choose to tell storylines that have some kind of trauma, I work with them to make them see their blind spots so that they're not perpetuating narratives of white savior stories or like uh, abject black bodies in the streets, right? So I'm teaching them how to be media consumers and also how to be media makers. But I'm also bringing my full human self to the classroom. Because the worst thing, and I experienced it in a conference call in my office with my colleagues, we're in the middle of a cultural trauma and a white supremacist workplace says that we are not supposed to have feelings, that the whole world is happening. Someone could be dying. A synagogue could be blown up. There are Jewish people in my de department. Are we not going to make space for the fact that they're experiencing a cultural trauma? Like we don't exist in a vacuum and to continue making it, not being able to sit in pain with one another, it's gonna make us continue perpetuating pain in the various ways that we can. So we have to learn how to sit with the things that make us uncomfortable and the things that harm. And we cannot focus on being objective because there is no objectivity when humanity is involved. That's a lie. That's my general feeling. Dr. Kim? Yeah, that's pretty similar to how I've handled it as a supervisor is, you know, here's where I am. I am not in a good space. Here's what I'm dealing with. My faith in humanity is getting crushed miserably right now. Um, and I don't know what to do with this. So I'm bringing it up here and opening this up as a safe space for all of our staff to talk about this. Because if I don't, especially in our field, if we don't talk about what's in crowding our headspace, and then we try to go do therapy, we're gonna harm people. We're gonna yeah. get short with people, we're gonna get irritable with people. Um, and, and then we can't hold their pain when we're holding our own. It's the same reason why people should be in therapy. And yes. we do their own work before they go into the mental health field. Um, <laughs> because if you don't, if you're still dealing with your own stuff, you're going to not be able to hold that and somebody else's stuff at the same time. So that's part of it is opening up the conversation, making it safe to feel uncomfortable because that's not a comfortable conversation for anybody, mm -hmm. but also making it, feel like a safe enough space that people can have emotions. One of my staff members started crying when we were talking about it. And then she was like, Oh my God, I can't believe I did that. I said, you know, that you don't need to apologize to a bunch of therapists for crying for one thing of all the people you need to apologize to. It is not us. But the hard thing is that as therapists, we feel like we're supposed to be above those things. We're supposed to always have our emotions in check. We're always supposed to be on top of this. We're supposed to be handling stuff and we're not supposed to crack. And so it's all the more difficult when we admit we're not okay. And, and as supervisors of other therapists, we need to make sure that we convey, convey the message that it is okay to not be okay sometimes, that you're still a human and that if you try to, to cover up the fact that you're not okay, it's actually going to cause harm to you and to your clients. The other piece of that you asked about was in the therapy space, what we do with it. And it's really about being open to learning from your clients. We're not, there's an inherent power structure in a therapy setting, whether we want it to be there or not, whether we try to set it up that way or not, there's an inherent power structure that gives the therapist power, which is why you don't, you know, that we have all these ethics codes that protect against certain activities because of this inherent power structure. So some therapists are afraid to admit they don't know something because they fear that they're going to give up some of that power or they're going to look like they don't know what they're doing. I personally never found that to be the case. 
when a client points out a blind spot to me, and it's happened before, I'm so grateful that they do that because if they hadn't pointed it out to me, I would have continued walking around with it and probably harmed somebody. So if a client says to me, for example, I'm a parent and my child didn't come home last night. As a parent, my thought would go, oh my gosh, is my, did my son get attacked? Um, did he, you know, things that about like, what, where is my son? What happened to him? And just kind of vague what happened to my son. But when a black mother experiences that, there are some very specific things that go through her mind. And had a client not pointed out to me that those are the things that were going through her mind, I wouldn't have picked up on it because my brain doesn't go there because I have privilege. It's part of my privilege that my brain didn't go there. And if I hadn't been in that room with her and she hadn't said, this is where my mind was going, not what you're talking about. This was actually what was happening. And then I was so grateful that she did that. And I asked her, hey, I really appreciate you pointing that out to me. Do you mind if I share that with my staff? Because they need to see that blind spot too. And she was very like very happy to let me share that. Um, but people kind of say, oh, I learn as much from my clients as I do as, as they do from me. But a lot of the time, they're not really being genuine about that. There are things we can learn from our clients that we wouldn't learn otherwise. Part of it is their unique point of view of any situation and how it's filtered through their culture. And if that culture is different from ours, it's even more important that we take a look at how their point of view is filtered through that culture so we can better understand them. There's always gonna be something we don't know if we're not part of that culture. But if we're not open to the fact that we don't know those things and we're not open to the fact that we have more to learn and we will never be perfect at it. Sorry, people, you're never gonna be perfect. You're just gonna to have to be okay with that. Um, we're always gonna, you're always striving for perfection and you're never going to hit it is the bottom line. <laughs> All of the information that you both have provided, it's been remarkable. Um, you know, I read the article, but this interview has provided so much more context, so much more history, um, and then so much more feeling getting to hear the both of you share uh, your research, your own experiences, what you both are teaching others as well through your professions. Um, this was absolutely phenomenal. And I thank you both again, um, Dr. Kim and Dr. Young for, for joining us and for sharing your experiences. Um, is there anything that either of you think would be important for our audience to know or for our audience to hear about viral videos, about cultural trauma um, that we haven't covered? Strive to be a good human. <laughs> Do that, it's hard to go wrong. Yep. There you go. Perfect. Thank you both so much. Um, we hope to talk to you again in the future. Okay. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Psychology Radiocast, a service of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. We'd love to hear ideas from you about important or fascinating topics that we might cover. Email us at ppa at papsy.org. You can also find us at papsy.org. Our project manager and audio editor is Amelia Herbst. Logo and artwork designed by Camille St. James. Music orchestrated by Raquel Emder and Ross Mann. Special thanks to PPA staffer Judy Huntley and PPA members Jessica Black, Bernard Seif, Kim Wesley, Lee Burnett, Cassandra Parrish, Lavanya Devdas, Nancy Raymore, and Molly Cowan for helping to make this podcast possible. As always, the views of our guests may not necessarily reflect those of PPA as an association. Until next time, I'm your host, Dr. David Zarung.